Man, I am just distracted today. It's it's just a joke. All right, here we go. It is Monday, April 21st, 2014. This is episode 64 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and also, as usual, joining me tonight is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hey, can we make a quick... I'm trying to get back to my game of Goat Simulator that I just downloaded. <laughs> my, my, kids, my kids have been hounding me for that game, man. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous. <laughs> So, Indeed. speaking of ridiculous, I, I have to, before we go any further, I have to tell you and, and everybody listening about something that just totally crushed my soul today. So, you heard about a national debt? Well, that's been crushing my soul for a long time. Okay. But but anyway, uh, I was reading stories in preparation for tonight's podcast, and uh, lo and behold, I see an advertisement for... A wonderful product from WatchGuard called the APT Blocker. Wow. Anyway, I um, I, I, I didn't know it was that simple. I know. It, I, it Apparently, it is just a box. I mean, we've been talking about how complicated APTs are to block, and all along, it was just a box. So, wow. you know, well, we may just pack up the show. I mean, I, what, what are we doing here? What else here? are we going to talk about? All right. So clearly, uh, just buy the box and you're good. There, there's right? nothing it else. Blocks a- APTs. Yes. I, I, wow. Yeah. I'm uh, gonna have to go back to flipping burgers at McDonald's. That's right. We're we're done. We're out of a job. Speaking of jobs, have have you heard from Bob lately? I did hear from Bob, and he asked me to pass on some some really important advice. Did he make it out of Eastern Ukraine? Okay, that's the first question. No, he's still there. Wow. He's still there. He's fighting the good fight. All right. Good. I heard he was passing out pamphlets to... Oh, that was... Nah. Oh. 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 We're getting hate mail now. Uh, anyway, um, he wasn't really. I'm kidding. Uh, anyhow, he did ask me to pass on something that... Uh, this is really important, especially for this crowd here, right? And what he what he wanted me to convey is that as IT professionals and, you know, systems administrators and security people, our computers are not protected by magical fairy dust. If you, <laughs> if you do crazy crap with your work computer and you get infected because your, you know, magical APT blocker uh, or, or whatever antivirus doesn't block it, you are probably more risky than the average user in your organization as a as an infected computer, so just keep that in mind. <laughs> good, 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 bro tip. <laughs> you know, if and when we ever actually take sponsorship or ads or whatever for this show, I'm thinking WatchGuard will not be lining up to sponsor us. Yeah, speaking of that, we went, I wanted to introduce our new sponsor. Oh, that's right, we don't do sponsors. No, no. Okay. Well, I guess that's not going to matter then, is it? Well, my sponsor tonight is uh, Samuel Adams. Yeah. Well, mine's as usual. Mike's hard lemonade. All right, good. Here we go. Wow. Oh, we just killed 10 minutes of the show. Okay. Yeah, so um, the, the first thing I wanted to mention, and this isn't, a, uh, this isn't a story that I can link to, but right after we re-recorded last week's show, which was uh, dedicated to Heartbleed, uh, it occurred to me, something really funny occurred to me, uh, right after Heartbleed was disclosed, everybody was using Yahoo!, as the you know as the proof of concept to gather passwords, and, and I find it particularly funny and ironic because everybody had just beaten the crap out of Yahoo to get them moved over to to SSL, and as soon as they do it, they become the poster child for Heartbleed. So anyway, damned if they do, damned if they don't. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So speaking of Heartbleed, we we do have a couple of. Follow-up stories uh, on Heartbleed. The first one comes to us from The Register. And the title is The Mounties Always Get Their Man, Heartbleed Hacker, 19 Cuffed. And a gentleman, 
and I use that term loosely, named Stephen Arturo Solis Rise, Rays of London, Ontario, was arrested. And apparently he, in fact, was allegedly the person who stole the 900 social insurance numbers from the Canadian Revenue Agency's website using the Heartbleed vulnerability. This uh, allegedly happened within six hours of the disclosure of the vulnerability. So, you know... Isn't this also a story that you called BS on in the last show? It is. And and I wanted to I wanted to bring that back up because, um, you know I, I mentioned that there were only a couple of possibilities, but what I didn't think of, and I guess there was two things, right? They're still not saying how they caught this guy, but or apparently what he did, or, exactly, correct. Sorry, I'm stealing your thunder. Go on. No, no, it's okay. You know, there, I think there's two new two new options on the table here, given that they actually apparently have a perpetrator who by the way is canadian as we talked about last week he's a polite guy only 900 records right anyhow (laughs) see not 40 million 900 anyhow the the deal is i i think there's two new options on the table here number one is this guy was out there bragging about it somewhere and wherever he was bragging about it he, you know, w- was being monitored by law enforcement. Uh, I guess there's a corollary one to that. Maybe it's the third one where he possibly may have notified the Canadian Revenue Agency of his antics. Hey, guess what I did? Possibility. Or, hey, you've got a problem. Look how I helped you fix it. There you go. Mm-hmm. Can I get a T-shirt? Uh, or or the, the, the last possibility is that the Canadian Revenue Agency actually... You know, sometime after the disclosure, put in some IPS rules and actually, actually saw it happening. So, don't really know for sure. They're not saying, but uh, wanted to follow up on that story in any event. All right. So, moving on to the next story, which is also about Heartbleed, comes from Mandiant's blog. And this story is about a investigation that Mandiant did into an intrusion at one of their customers using an SSL VPN, which was penetrated using Heartbleed. So apparently what happened was the attacker uh, figured out that this SS- this customer's, uh, this organization's SSL VPN was vulnerable to Heartbleed and proceeded to effectively session hijack or, or hijack a couple of VPN sessions, which bypassed the the two-factor authentication requirements and some of the other requirements, which is, by the way, you know, really slick and not something we think about when, uh, when, when we put something like this in. So anyway, interesting story. They, they, um, Mandiat recommends a couple of ideas on how to go back and see if you were potentially impacted by this. And in particular, looking for, VPN logs where you see changes or, or hops between two different IP addresses, which you know normally VPN concentrators can see endpoint IP addresses change. Like if you're on a if you're on a four G network and you're roaming, you might your IP address might change as you go from cell to cell or or, or uh, area to area. But if you if you are seeing the same two IP addresses kind of fighting in the logs that that's probably an indication of of something going on here. So, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it also brings up an interesting point. One, I don't really blame necessarily the SSL VPN vendor in this particular case. I think most major manufacturers were probably impacted by this. Uh, I know of a number Juniper being by far the most widely deployed SSL VPN provider. A bunch of their versions were, yeah. All vulnerable, um, and they pass pretty quick. But you know, the question becomes: in a situation like this, do you take down the SSL VPN until you can patch it? Do you leave it up? You know, that's an interesting question to ask and think about. If you know it's compromised or ability to be compromised, or you know that it could, somebody could do it, session hijack, do you leave it up? Is it more important to have access that could be compromised, or do you take it down until you can patch it? Yeah, or or do you? figure out like this if there is something that you could do to detect it being exploited. Right. Kind of the middle ground. 
You know, that, that's a that's a good question, and I think it depends on what you've got going on in your organization. Because I mean, as as we see here, here is an example of it. And you know what? One thing that isn't at all dealt with in this article, but I it it, it is ringing in the back of my head when I read this. You know, this isn't a normal heartbleed type of attack, right? Where we see we see people just uh, you know have written scripts to go through to to run out and, and continually grab uh, pages of memory and look you know, parse out different interesting things. You know, this is this is kind of a step beyond the uh, beyond that, right? Because they they essentially have figured out how to not only not only do that, which is relatively trivial to do, but also to craft essentially a VPN client, which allows them to stuff in, you know, the, the, the session details and then, and then take over, which it's true. You know, there isn't, there isn't a lot of context about how quickly after the disclosure this happened, you know, I, I guess it says on April 8th, which is not long after the disclosure, if I recall right, you know, that, that kind of makes me a little suspicious. So, yeah, it was uh, disclosed on April seventh. So that's you know twenty four hours later. Yeah, if that. So, yeah, that's true. They would have had to. Well, hmm. I know session hijacking was one thing a lot of people were talking about. There was some initial debate as to whether or not session hijacking was possible, and then some people came out and said, "Hey, you know, the bigger concern, other than just grabbing." bits of memory is being able to do session hijacking. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but you're right. It depends on you know, how the SSL VPN was set up. Keep in mind that you can terminate SSL VPN connection with your browser most times. Um, True. So it's interesting, though. I, I, I would be interested in seeing some proof of concept code on how exactly they're grabbing that hijack session once you've got it. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it is a matter of setting up a half open SSL VPN connection with your browser and you know shoving in the credentials information or whatever it is they're doing exactly that they've captured from um, the SSL VPN via Heartbleed. Uh, I, I clearly am not smart enough to know exactly how they did this, and I'm purely speculating. And people out there who do know are probably laughing their ass off at me right now. But um, well, you know, I, I think interesting. I, I think it's an impressive feat. To be able to do if all you had was twenty four hours notice yeah. on, on on this. So regardless of the te- the technical details, I think it was a pretty impressive feat. This is not just stripping out some passwords yep. from from the memory dump. This is you know this is taking it a lot farther. So anyhow, moving on. Next next story we have comes from V three, and this story's title is hackers hit. Harley Medical Group in customer data extortion attempt. And Harley Medical Group, I believe, is in the UK. And in this attack, some 480,000 customer records were stolen. Things like names, addresses, dates of birth, email addresses, but not financial or medical information. And um, what appears to have happened here is the attackers apparently stole the data and then try to extort money from this medical company. I, I, I assume in, in the article kind of insinuates it is a result of another medical company, the British pregnancy advisory service being fined by a government regulator there. So I think the, 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 the implication here is that the attackers you know, stole the data and said, "Hey, you know, if you don't want us to go and rat you out to to the uh, to the government, you need to pay us some money. Otherwise, you're going to get fined." Well, that's an interesting uh, tactic. Now, clearly, I don't know how the laws in the UK work exactly. I'm not sure how that works, but I, you know, I'm guessing them preem- preemptively coming out and saying, "Hey, this happened," probably uh, prevents them from a certain amount of fine, but. Yeah, and this is something we see here, right? I mean, this is like a bigger version of the ransomware stuff floating around and, you know, CryptoLocker and such. It's, you know, we also see this when people are threatening DDoSes yeah. as an extortion technique. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good that we're, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing people stand up or organizations standing up to it because we, we definitely don't want another CryptoLocker no. type of environment where, where uh, people... Are, are really apt to pay the, the ransom. Though it makes you wonder how many are paying the ransom that we never hear about, because clearly they're not going to go to press. 
Well, that's a good point. That's a really good point. We we only hear about the ones who resist. Yeah. So, anyhow, uh, you know, I think the 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 reason I brought that up is you know, we're uh, we're seeing this as another another tactic, right? Where we don't we don't exactly know how the data was stolen, and we we probably will never know how the data was stolen. But it isn't just ending up on pastebin. It's now you know it's now being used as part of a, a, a of a more insidious criminal enterprise. So you know be, be aware and kind of factor that into your your risk plans. So moving on to our next story, the Mandiant released their 2014 M Trends report. And uh, you know, I, I don't know why I'm so enamored with these reports, but I am. It's it's a it's an illness, I'll admit. But <clears throat> the, they do have some pretty good information. We it, should probably caution right up front: you've got to register to download it. You do have to register to download it, but it's a Just, good read. It is a good read, and it's free. But you know, it's kind of like saying, "Hey, paywall kind of thing." It's just it's just a good general practice to. Uh, fair, fair point. Fair point. But hopefully, everybody knows how to use Tor Mail, or you know, uh, there's there's lots of options. Well, now Mandy is never going to sponsor us. Good job. Jeez. At least, you know what? At least I didn't post the PDF, right? I could. We're going to be down to Barracuda before it's left. Oh wait, no. They're oh, gone. they're gone now too. <laughs> Jeez. Ouch. <laughs> All right. Today's sponsor: Bob's Budget Bait and Dial In. All right. Yeah. Your favorite 24K connection site. All right. Sorry. Sorry. I completely digress. So, Mandiant's report. Yes. So, so they, is this a regular report? Is this an is annual it, it report? An, what are we, what is it this? is an annual report. All right. And they they report on a couple of really interesting key metrics that I like to follow. And one of the first ones is the number of days that an attacker is present before they're, they're found. This is scary. I, I really feel that customers not customers, but companies are in denial about this stat. Yes. And and the good news is it there was a, a relatively significant improvement year to year. So in 2012, it took an average of 243 days to find an attacker on your network. In 2013, it went down to 229 days, which is still a really, really long time. Wow. Can, can you imagine that? 229 days with an active attacker, active in your environment, yeah. unspotted. Yeah, and, on average. And when you read some of the, you know, because this is a this is something that I I really like doing is reading about the gory details of some of these these hacks. A lot of the bigger ones like Target in the state of South Carolina and others, you know, there the attackers are in for weeks or months before they actually start. Stealing data. Which is somewhat counterintuitive to me. Because unless they know they're relatively safe. In my mind, the clock is ticking. So, you know, smash and grab. But, uh, you know, I guess this is why I'm not a bad guy. Or at least not a very good one. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to think that partly it's because the sophistication of some of the organizations. It's not, I suspect, it's, you know, the data that they all they want is not just really readily accessible. So they have to go and collect it over a period of time, and then they have to exfiltrate it over a period of time. So here's the other thing I speculate about. You know, a lot of this stuff, some of these initial intrusions, are somewhat automatic. And, you know, call home, their CNC servers, and that sort of stuff. And I wonder if there's a period of time where the attackers are, you know, they're kind of aware that they've got a box popped on that network or that network, but they don't get around to it for a period of time. Oh, you had, it's almost like you read this. <laughs> so, so we'll get to that in a second. I'm sorry, it's kind of my job. <laughs> but, but that's an awesome segue. But before I get there, yeah. uh, another another interesting stat in this report they they uh, they annually report on is who discovers these breaches, and while the the attackers present number went down the number of organizations who discover the breach themselves has gone down from 37% in 2012 to 33% in 2013 and and that's pretty 
sad because in all the other cases, some other organization, whether it's law enforcement, uh, you know, anybody else, right? Brian Krebs calls you up. Uh, some other third-party entities is notifying the majority of of these victims. What I found entertaining was that 8% were notified by Elvis, which, who knew? Well, you know. That joke sounded so much better in my head. Yeah, yeah, well. We might just edit that out of the show. Moving on. Moving on. (laughs) They can't can't all be winners, man. (laughs) All right. The next, uh, the next really interesting stat I saw was that forty-four percent of phishing emails were IT related, and and I suspect some of this has to do with the Syrian electron, electronic army activity, where they are really very adept at at uh, mimicking organizations' IT departments. So obviously they don't account for all of what's being seen, but you know I think the one takeaway here and, and there's there's another report flying around that has a very similar finding i'll have to go see if i can dig that one up but attackers are are learning pretty quickly that you know they they can get a, their phishing emails to be a lot more sticky if they impersonate the security department or the it department and and so that's i think something to factor into your training and education plans so, anyhow, moving on, they do talk a little bit about the Syrian Electronic Army, Iran, uh, but the thing I really wanted to focus on is the credit cards. And they have a, they've got a, uh, an interesting take on how some number of these more extensive breaches start. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying this is how Target started or, or any of the others, but uh, the idea here is that. And some person in the organization gets a commodity Trojan, right? Zeus or, or whatever. And uh, obviously, Zeus doesn't do a whole lot if you're, you know, if you're just in, if you infected the marketing person's computer, right? Uh, but the what their what Mendian's speculation is, and I don't think they have any hard proof. This is what's actually happening. But I wouldn't be surprised if this is happening at all. Is that at some point? Somebody who is the botmaster behind behind what was initially delivered is seeing on their control panel that oh look at that there's a you know a system with the domain name of you know dot retailer dot com and that kind of gets put off to the side and probably sold you know sold to some yep. to some. Uh, deeper criminal, and and then there, that that criminal then in turn pushes down some some more complicated malware, which in turn starts the the whole process of you know the, the deeper the deeper things we've seen like at Target with you know, infecting POS terminals and whatnot, and and then they they go into a little bit of detail. Uh, on, on the next page, this is a page, if you're following along at home, page 15, uh, on how some of the pivoting is working, or so lateral movement, so to speak. And I actually wrote an article about this, gosh, a couple of months ago. Um, but essentially, what they're saying here is that domain controllers are becoming a very popular pivot point in an organization because they tend to span... Networks, right? So you might have a, you might have a, you know, general user's computer is, is infected, and they can, uh, through various means, obtain access. The attackers can obtain access on the domain controller, and then they can, in turn, use that domain controller's access to either other domain controllers or to the POS terminals themselves. And here's an interesting thing. At least back in the day when I was doing operational work. Domain controllers need a whole bunch of ports open bidirectionally between them and a whole bunch of systems. And usually all of the workstations, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a really open sort of firewall rule set to let that stuff through, which is, you know, obviously advantageous. Yeah, and I think that's why it's becoming such a, a popular method for these attackers, because I think it's very common to see that clear line of sight into and out of 
these domain controllers and you know once you're once you're on one of these workstations generally it's not that difficult to elevate your privileges and get actually get onto the domain controllers so it's it, it's a really difficult thing to to guard against but there's a there's a lot to learn here so anyhow they uh after that they go into a bit of analysis and, and rehash on China and and follow up to their APT1 report and you know basically they they talk about how China took a breather after APT1 came out the APT1 report came out and then they got right back to work. So there you have it. All right, the next story I've got comes from FireEye which ironically owns Mandiant. This this blog post is called The Economics of Security. And it, it isn't a very long article, and it, it's obviously a marketing piece, but they make some really good points that I think are, are particularly useful and something that we can learn from. And the idea here is the need to, to periodically measure the business benefit of your, of your security stuff. This is a holy debate yes. that we are opening up here. Showing value... An ROI on security controls has been just a huge debate and problem and issue from day one in this industry. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, don't, I don't think they have any particular insight, right? They, they kind of say, watch this space. We'll be talking about it more. And, and, yeah. and clearly they're, they have a, they've got an agenda behind writing it. But one of the, one of the proposed things that, that they say to measure resonated with me and the whole reason I wanted to, to put this in here and, and that is measuring the, the noise to incident ratio of, of your controls. And and so they they bring up the you know kind of the, the the often used metric of how many how many incidents were raised or how many how many things were found and at the end of the day, that's not all that useful of a number because I, I see some. How many packets were blocked by your firewall? Yes. How many spams did you block? Yeah. To- totally irrelevant, irrelevant in, in contextless numbers. And, and the point here is, you know, are you, you know, how effective is this thing at finding an actual incident? What's the, you know, what's the false positive rate, I guess is what probably the best way to say it. But that's always a, a methodology of tuning, right? A couple of comments that I have on this. One, very rarely do security controls work in a vacuum by themselves mm-hmm. and can be assessed by themselves. Uh, you, you know, And how you tune these, you have a whole spectrum between false positives and false negatives. And you yep. don't want to have so few false positives that you're getting now a ton of false negatives, that you're missing stuff. Right. So it's a much more nuanced conversation than that. And it really depends on your particular environment and where this particular security device sits in your organization. Contrary to what marketing and salespeople want you to believe, a lot of these tools take a lot of care and feeding mm-hmm. and need to be much like we saw with Target and FireEye. Fire is a great tool, but if you don't know what you're looking at, you'll ignore stuff and miss it. Right. And... Anyway, it's it's just a bit of a simplistic message to say, you know, well, what does it block? Like many things, and, and it's security is very difficult to measure by what it's doing as opposed to what it's preventing, and it's very difficult to know what it's preventing because a lot of things aren't fully blown threats that get evolved out to the full noticeable situation because of different security in different situations. Yep. That's that's absolutely true, uh, I, but I think at the end of the day, though, you still you still have to try to to quantify the value, right? Yeah, you do. I just I don't. That's I mean, look, that's the that is the kind of the holy grail now, right? Is is it, it comes back to how, how do you know you've invested the right amount? How do you how do you know you've not invested too much or too little or how or, how do you quantify the value of your smoke alarms? Yeah. No, we're brushing your teeth. <laughs> well, look, you've invested in this entire smoke alarm system, right? And it's tied together and alerts the fire department, and it's never triggered. Did you waste the money? 
Well, I, I, you can carry that argument on and on and on, right? You know, it, what about your homeowner's insurance policy? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I can quantify that I'm shifting liability, uh, you know, and, and in that particular case, you know, typically we have really good actual information about how often certain incidents occur statistically over, uh, you know, your zip code, and, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, right? We can we can look at uh, odds and we can look at various things, but with InfoSec, it's not that static. Yeah, right. I think that is that is the challenge as an industry. We are are too immature to to get there, right, or, or, or to be there right now. I mean, I think eventually we we have to get there. Yeah, and You're right. We we have to, and I I think you you bring up a good point that it's very difficult to do right now because I don't think we have the framework and the methodology and and the thought process behind how to do it. But I think eventually. As as a you know as a business function, we have to get there. This is, and I've, I've said this a lot, and we both said this a lot. Right? It is not unlike an insurance policy for a business, and in, and companies don't willy nilly go out and just arbitrarily pick how much money they're going to spend on an insurance policy. Right. You know they there is some science behind it, and the I think the thing we're lacking as an industry is is the science behind what's the right level of stuff to be doing in InfoSec. Yeah, and I think that's where my frustration derives on this particular story is uh, I've seen too many people, especially salespeople, come up with these BS methodologies to try to prove the value. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that frustrates me a little bit. (laughs) And back to your your, your smoke alarm thing. I, I think there's lots of data out there that will tell you the mortality rate of people who have smoke alarms versus don't have them. Okay, sure. Um, and if I'm a smoke alarm salesman, that's exactly what I'm going to use to scare you into buying. Well, and the same goes for, you know, I, I don't know if you get the calls all the time, but I do, the the uh, you know the home alarm system, right? Yeah. They, you know, they, they use FBI statistics rampantly to try to sell mm-hmm. that crap. So, you know, they're, they're trying to cause a sense of urgency, right? And they're trying Absolutely. to cause uh, a sense of panic. If you will, so InfoSec can fall into the same trap. Uh, the problem is that a lot of that stuff is easily grasped by non-technical people, mm-hmm. and especially non-security people. Uh, you know, this is a far more complex environment. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I just it, it frustrates me that we haven't we haven't progressed beyond and and I, I think it comes back to the to the reality that we're kind of a you know a nascent thing and i think i this is probably all of it struggles with this this whole problem of what is the right level of investment and at some point we have to be able to quantify whether you know whether this thing is you know sh- should should we invest in and i mean this is the reason that fireeye put this together right is they're they're mm-hmm. saying, hey, you know what? If you go with FireEye, you're you know you're you're going to have less false positives. You'll you'll have ac- more actionable. And by the way, I'm not saying this is the case or not the case. I'm just saying this is what they're what they're positioning. And, and but I think fundamentally, that's the right ultimately the right the right thought process we have to have. And I'm not saying that I'm it's, we're going to get there in my career, but eventually we got to get there. I see your point. I I personally read it slightly differently, um, but I, I I can definitely see that. And and perhaps both of these were a driver going into it. But the way they open this is they're talking about customers who are saying, "What technology can I remove to free a budget to enable the implementation of FireEye?" Right? Yeah. So they're treating this as a zero sum game, and they're trying to figure out a way to justify the expense of adding FireEye. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of this is because this is a net new technology area. You don't have to ask what what you need to free up to remove AV or add AV because everybody has an AV budget in general yeah, because it's been accepted wall. for a long time that AV is necessary. Yep, absolutely. These anti advanced anti-malware tools don't have that budget item. So part of my thought process on them as well is where does some of this budget come from is also – the compliance world and the governance around that saying 
you shall have X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. And and that kind of goes back to a fundamental problem I have that we don't necessarily know whether, you know, if, if if you were to average out how much companies spend on on uh, uh, infosec, there's probably a relatively narrow range of you know percent of revenue or, or something like that. It's probably it's it's it is probably a relatively narrow range. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be outliers, but one of the I would f- say would there's probably some some commonality between verticals. Yeah, and maybe some differences yeah. in different verticals too. Fair enough. Yeah, finance is going to spend more than manufacturing, as an example. No, yeah. no question about that. But I guess one of the one of the things that's been concerning me about about this from a macro level is, you know, we we've as a as a civilization have benefited dramatically from the automation that computers have brought, and you know we we let that get and not I'm not saying this is wrong, right? But that got way ahead of us, and we're making an assumption that where our pin is at relative to IT security investment is the right place. And I'm not necessarily convinced that that's for sure where it has to be. Given the problems we're having, clearly something is broken. Yeah. Right? Now, the fundamental point of this article is, in my mind, is do you do anything to validate the value of existing security controls? I think it's a safe question. I think it's a good question. I, I would add on to that, are you doing anything to value the security controls in terms of how well you're actually executing with them? Absolutely. You know, you can buy a security control, throw it out there, and not touch it for a year and have nobody look at it, and I can promise you that security control is not giving you much value. But that's because you're not managing it properly. Right. And and to an extent, I think, in my mind at least, those are the kinds of things that I would want I would want to find those. I would want to surface those to say, you know what? I'm not going to renew my FireEye maintenance because I don't use it. Yeah. Or flip side, we could get value out of this if we had another guy on the team. Yeah, there you go. Right, which is less likely to occur. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know why I went off on such a rant on this one, but it, it just pushed a couple buttons. But No, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Anyhow, let's move on to our next story. This one comes from Krebs on security, and this is actually where I saw the APT blocker. So anyhow, the title is 3 million customer credit debit cards stolen in Michael's Aaron Brothers breaches. That's a lot of upset cat ladies right there. <laughs> Jeez. Now we're down to six listeners. <laughs> We are, Have you been to Michaels? Of course not. But we are. We are. Bill Michaels. We are huge in the single cat lady demographic. <laughs> oh my bad! And you just blew it. I didn't say there was anything bad about that. I just said they shop at Michaels. Anyhow, back on track. Um, got to make little ears for their cats. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> Sweaters. Yes. All right. I'm sorry. Host <sighs> tonight. I'm sorry. Go wow. on. Anyhow. Uh, this is another one of those cases where we don't exactly know how this came to be, but there are some interesting details to talk about. Hopefully we will find more. I suspect it's going to probably be more like Target, though, where you know it's, it's speculation and whatnot. But anyhow, 3 million credit cards. The, uh, the CEO, of course, called it a highly sophisticated malware attack. Aren't they all when they work against your company? Highly sophisticated. At at the Michael's stores, they are saying that roughly 7% of credit cards used in their stores between May 8th, 2013 and January 27th, 2014 were impacted. And that was, I think, 2.7 million credit cards. And apparently it only, I don't know, they don't really have a whole lot of details about, of course, how or, or where, which what the mechanism of infection was, but apparently this wasn't all of their, their POS terminals. It was only, only some of them in some stores. So, you know, hopefully we'll we'll find more about that. And uh, the, their other subsidiary called Aaron's had about 400,000 cards stolen from 54 different stores over about a year period as well. 
So that um, that is a uh, uh, boy. I, I gotta tell you, if you're a retailer right now, especially a bigger retailer, you you've got such a target on your back. Yeah, no kidding. So anyhow, well, not only that, but also the you know the the credit card issuers have got to be really starting to think about chip and pin and other other methodologies here. This is going to start getting really, really expensive for those guys at some point. Yeah, and it, it'll be interesting to see, in the case of Target, given the amount of money that was spent on card reissuance and, and whatnot, not, let alone you know the actual fraudulent transactions themselves, uh, if they're able to recover any of that from Target, if, if the, you know, at the end of the day, other than bad press and, you know, grumpy people filing lawsuits, there isn't a ton of, of financial penalties to these organizations, you know, to these retailers when that happens. It's obviously bad press and, you know, there's, there's, there's discussion about the Target's stock take a hit because uh, you know because of the breach or you know was it macroeconomic factors I, who knows right right but you know th- at the end of the day they're not they're not paying out of pocket to re- you know to remunerate the banks that that uh not, not yet not yet exactly we'll, we'll see we'll see i you know one thing i do want to kind of quote from the article which i thought very entertaining and also very accurate but i'm really glad Greg said this he said quote incidentally credit monitoring services will do nothing to protect consumers from fraud on existing financial accounts, such as credit and debit cards. And they're not great at stopping new account fraud committed in your name. The most you can hope for with these services is that they alert you as quickly as possible after identity thieves have opened or attempted to open new accounts in your name. I couldn't agree more. But, you know, credit monitoring is like the de facto, oops, we're sorry. Uh, And it's nearly worthless to, to... people in these situations but but it is a you know it is it is probably the only olive branch they can actually extend i mean well there's nothing else they can do and and it's it's a total non you know it, it like you said it doesn't help krebs actually wrote an entire article about about the the yeah. unhelpfulness of of uh credit monitoring or the lack thereof and and uh um, but you know you know what does help a credit freeze actually go freeze your credit all yeah, three credit yeah. processors you have to pay for it but then no new credit can be opened at all without your quote-unquote secret pin and that is probably one of the most effective ways to to stop this in my opinion just a little free consumer advice there well there you go I, that I, ultimately i think that's going to be the end game here, I, I, I think from a from a from a credit fraud perspective, not from a credit card fraud, you know, but but from an actual credit fraud perspective, I think we ultimately have to get there. It's you know the the the, the amount of data that's floating around is just too pervasive. It's going to keep getting disclosed. I mean, eventually every single detail about every U.S. citizen and potentially other citizens around the world is going to be floating around. And, and it, it, what do you do then? I think this is the, I think what you just described is the end state. Well, and this is also why I'm not a big fan of biometrics. Yeah. You can't change them. Yeah. I've, I can't have revoke your thumbprint. I have had some really vicious arguments about with people who, who are enamored with biometrics. I'm totally with you there. I think it's a terrible idea. Terrible it's idea. Convenience. It's not security. It's convenience. It's a terrible idea. It's a password that you leave everywhere, yeah. and you can't change. Well, and I've gone off on this rant, you know, and somebody actually informed me on this, and I was really appreciative of this, but one of our listeners informed me when I was incorrectly stating there was no way to change the social security number. There is, but it's really, 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 really difficult yeah. and not viable for the vast majority of people. Um but if we had a methodology to change our social security numbers when they were leaked, I think we could stop a lot of fraud too. But yeah, or or just like, I think the the credit freezes is the ultimate answer, right? To 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 be able to. But keep in mind, it's not just credit, right? If I if I can get your social security number, I can screw with your tax records. I can do all sorts of nasty things. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And and by the way, uh, it didn't make it into this story, but there was uh, just before we went on, we started recording. 
there was a, a story about the University of Pennsylvania's medical center had a, a pretty big data breach and something like uh, eight or 900 employees had fake tax returns submitted in their names. Breaking news. You heard it here first. Well, depending on when you actually download and listen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> this, could have been, this could have been weeks ago by the time you hear this recording. And and you know that that's a uh, you know, the, the, here in the U.S. at least the IRS is not very sympathetic when no uh, <laughs> no we're, about we're, really anything. We're really really sorry that somebody committed fraud in your name. We we however we expect for you to to yeah. pay. So anyhow, um, the the last story we've got tonight is also from Krebs on Security also has that annoying banner at the top. Um, although, Krebs, I still love you, man. But anyhow, um, the title is Hardware Giant Lassie, I think that's how you say it, acknowledges year-long credit card breach. And this is yet more fallout from the Adobe Cold Fusion debacle from last year. And, man, this thing is just the gift that keeps on giving. So there was an undisclosed number of credit cards caught up in this. Uh, I've I've heard some pretty significant numbers being uh, being rumored about this, but uh, as far as the Krebs articles go, he doesn't have any any particular details about that. But in any event, this was something that he had posted uh, a while ago. I guess earlier this year uh, when when he he and his cohort came across a uh, a botmaster a bot control panel and and i think they saw this uh this company's website appear there so anyhow more more evidence if if you need it patch your crap you know th- this as i recall this uh this bug was a year old at the time it was started to be leveraged so that's not good yeah yep it's not good you know i think it's one of those things where cold fusion sites are are generally complicated and and you know from what i've heard i've not got a lot of personal experience with cold fusion but i what i've heard is that it can be painful to go from one version to the next and so they they don't often make it easy yeah, and that is one thing that we struggle with still as an industry in general is understanding the maintainability, patchability, downtime requirements, resiliency of our applications. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Especially the the larger, more customized applications. Uh they they tend to be a real pain in the rear end to patch. So anyhow, that is uh, that is all the stories for this evening. Uh, one thing I wanted to say and uh, is, you know, I, I'm all signed up for DerbyCon. Hopefully, everybody else is is going. You can maybe catch up with me there. I don't know if you're if you're going yet. Um, I'm trying. The the challenge I'm having is that it is right near end of Q3. Uh, yeah. Um, and being in a sales engineering role. That's causing a little bit of pain, but I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on it. My, okay. my current, uh, it's some internal stuff going on where my current leadership is actually a little bit in flux. Some folks are getting moved around and promoted, and so I'm trying to figure out who's my new boss to prove such things. But Cool. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a blast for everybody listening. It was, if you have the opportunity to go, it is a really good conference. They have pretty epic parties each night, and... Uh, the the talks are really good. It's not a huge, not a huge conference. I think there were just around two thousand people. Nice, which is you know not not bad. Um, I'm I'm uh, if you go see I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm, I'm going to work on getting a logo, a, a real logo, not that crap I threw together, and uh, and you know some t-shirts or something. I'm thinking, uh, well, depending on how much weight of gear we're taking, we could maybe even fly up there. Oh, that's right. That would be cool. Yeah, it's not a bad hop. It's Kentucky. It's uh, probably about two and a half hours. That would be a lot faster than the way I went last year. <laughs> anyway, off topic, but yep. uh, it, it depends on how much gear we're taking and you know 
how big of a plane we want to rent. That's which equals cost. Uh, I got it. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> well, the other thing I wanted to bring up is I am reading a really good book that I wanted to uh, to give a shout out to. It's a it's a pretty new book uh, from a guy named Adam Shostak. The name of the book is Threat Modeling. Mm. It is uh, probably the longest book I've ever read. On my Kindle, I swear I read you know like ten or eleven pages, and I don't move up you know one percent in the wow. in the complete. It's a very long book, but it's pretty good. Is this covering you know IT security threat modeling or threat modeling in general? IT security threat modeling. Gotcha. And in, in particular, as it relates to software design, but I would say it's more you know the lessons he's talking about are more broadly applicable. Nice. So one thing I want to mention is uh, just a programming note. I'm not sure when we're going to do this, but we are working on a show dedicated to an interesting topic that someone asked us about, because we often banter around the term, being compliant is not being secure. And so we're thinking about dedicating a show, diving into that topic of why we say that and justifying that statement, and hopefully maybe uh, educating some folks in the process. So... Not sure when we're going to do that, but probably in the next couple of episodes, somewhere in there, we'll we'll get around to doing that. Yep, absolutely. That will be a fun discussion. Yes, indeed. So, anyhow, that's all I got. Thank you much, and thanks for everyone's time lis- listening tonight, or whenever you listen. And uh, you know, we we definitely enjoy bringing this podcast to you. If you have any ideas or feedback for us, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. We, uh, we, you know, we're getting a relatively, uh, you know, steady volume of email. So that's, it's been kind of fun talking to, to uh, different people out there. I mean, all you know, six or eight listeners. So, um, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at defensive sec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at Defense, uh, sorry, at Malicious Link, and you can find the show notes and whatnot on the website at www.defensivesecurity.org. If you like the podcast, give us some stars on on uh, iTunes, please. That that uh, that's awesome. Anyhow, and, and and tell a friend, and tell a friend, absolutely. Till next time, have a great night. Bye.